Yes, well now, tonight we continue with our doctrinal studies, and this evening we are to lesson number 20, uh, 27. And you remember where we are in these studies, and it's important to keep the place in mind, because it's not only the individual study that's important, but it's whole, the whole framework. So what we're doing is studying at the present time the present aspect of salvation. And we have considered, first of all, the new relationships, first to the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and then the brotherhood of believers. And that included the question of the church and its discipline. And then, the so the first aspect in the present life is the new relationship. And the second aspect was what we took last time, and that is never lost again, or assurance. But once we have accepted Christ as our Savior, we may have assurance of our salvation, and we will not be lost again. Now, we carried that on, however, in really into the next area, uh, in the end of last time, that's 26. We carried it on into the fact that just because we cannot be lost again, that does not mean that sin is unimportant in the Christian's life. Just because we cannot be lost again does not mean that sin is unimportant in the Christian's life. And then we went on, however, because it seems to me it's imperative not to just hang at that particular place. We went on last time and finished at the point that if we do sin, we can be restored. Now, actually, at that particular point, it just flows right on into our present study tonight. And tonight, we begin with a study of repentance. Repentance. Now, I've mentioned repentance somewhere back in the, uh, in the previous study, in the previous 26 lessons. We have considered repentance, but not, not at all fully, and I do want to take it here. And uh, to begin, I will read the Confession, the Westminster Confession, uh, on repentance. So this is chapter tw 15 in the Westminster Confession of Faith. And there are six sections, and I'll read them all. One, repentance unto life is an evangelical grace, <clears throat> the doctrine whereof it is to be preached by every minister of the gospel, as well as that of faith in Christ. Two, by it a sinner, out of the sight and sense, not only of the danger, but also of the filthiness and odiousness of his sins, as contrary to the holy nature and righteous law of God, and upon the apprehension of his mercy in Christ, to such as are penitent, so grieves for and hates his sins as to turn from them all unto God, purposing and endeavoring to walk with him in all the ways of his commandments. 3. Although repentance be not to be rested in as any satisfaction for sin or any cause of the pardon thereof, which is the act of God's free grace in Christ, Yet is it of such necessity to all sinners that none may expect pardon without it. 4. 
As there is no sin so small but it deserves damnation, so there is no sin so great that it can bring damnation upon those who truly repent. 5. Men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but it is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins particularly. 6. As every man is bound to make private confession of his sins to God, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which and the forsaking of them he shall find mercy, so he that scandalizeth his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by a private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. And this is the confession statement on repentance. Now, there are Christians today, and true Christians, real brothers in Christ, that would frown on the preaching of repentance. And they do this because they say that it adds to or tends to add to the work of Christ and has no place in Christian preaching. They would do this in contrast to the Old Testament preaching, for example. This would be an area of uh, dispensationalism would teach this, and especially uh, somewhat extreme dispensationalism, perhaps. Now, it would seem to me that this is an impossible position. It's perfectly true that it's possible to so preach repentance that one loses the evangelical preaching of the gospel. That is, one can preach repentance to such an extent that one acts as if one is merely sorry for his sin, God will forgive him on the basis of his being sorry. Once this position is taken, one is not preaching a Christian gospel anymore. And yet, having said this, that one must be careful not to preach repentance in such a way as though mere, for, mere repentance for one's sins will bring forgiveness with a holy God, uh, yet, nevertheless, that does not say that one cannot preach repentance in a proper fashion. As a matter of fact, I would say, in the light of the verses I'll read with you now, it seems to me impossible, really, to preach the gospel without an emphasis on repentance. Now, the balance falls that it is not enough for salvation, and we're speaking, first of all, in preaching the gospel to the lost, but while it is not enough for salvation, that does not mean to say that it isn't proper that a man should be sorry for his sin before God as he flees toward Christ. Now, uh, let us look at some of the verses. This is a very small uh, sampling, really. Uh, but to remind ourselves of how strongly we are uh, find in the Scripture an emphasis on a true repentance for one's sin sorrow for one's sin. Now remember as we read these, we've already said, this is not, it's quite clear, this is not the ground for our salvation. The ground for our salvation is only the finished work of Christ. Yet nevertheless, that the Bible does emphasize that as a, as a man who is not a Christian moves toward accepting Christ as Savior, he should be sorry for his sin. As a matter of fact, one can say it's stronger than that. And that is, there's a real question, would anyone will ever really accept Christ as Savior? Is if there isn't some at least weak comprehension uh, of his guilt before God and sorrow for his sin. Matthew 3, 2. 
and saying, Repent ye, for the kingdom of, God, of heaven is at hand. So we find that in the preaching of John the Baptist, uh, just use this one place, there is a constant emphasis in the preaching of John the Baptist on the fact that they should repent. Now, it's perfectly true that John the Baptist, or baptizer, uh, was the last of the Old Testament prophets. So in this sense, he is not a, this is not New Testament preaching, it is Old Testament preaching, even though it is found in the New Testament. It is, he is pointing his finger forward to Christ, uh, as the, uh, someone like Leonardo da Vinci would always picture John the Baptist pointing his finger at Christ, or forward toward Christ. Yet in this sense, it's Old Testament preaching. Yet we must understand the New Testament begins with this tremendous emphasis of John the Baptist on repentance in preparation for the coming of Christ. Now, when Christ came, he continued the same preaching. So in Matthew 9.13, in Matthew 9.13, But go ye and learn what that meaneth. I will have mercy and not sacrifice, for I am not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. So now you have, you can think of this in two different ways, and of course, if one is going to think completely at all, one must think of it in two different ways. There's two steps here. There is an Old Testament preaching in the sense looking forward to the death of Christ upon the cross. So what you have is John the Baptist standing in the Old Testament in a way, and Jesus himself standing in the Old Testament in one sense here, in the sense that he is pointing forward to his death. Yet, nevertheless, while one can think of it in this rather absolute sense, uh, nevertheless, it is, it is not removed in the individual coming to Christ. So as you see time going on and the law is a schoolmaster to bring us to Christ and as we consider these things we are to be repentant and sorry, uh, looking at it in the larger sense and then Jesus comes and dies upon the cross and we entered in, enter into the New Testament preaching. Yet nevertheless, for the individual, there is a going through of a like, a like walk. The preparation for the acceptance of Jesus Christ by being confronted with the fact that we are sinners and uh, we need salvation and with this a real sense of repentance. In Mark uh, 6.12, and remember this is not an exhaustive study, it's only a suggestive one, but it, uh, it'll be enough, I think, to feel the force of the need of repentance. Here we find the disciples preaching. And they went out and preached that men should repent. So this is a bit, uh, bit n another step. John the Baptist, Christ himself, the disciples, as they went out preaching that men should repent. Now, it's perfectly right. This is all still on the other side of the cross. Now, in Luke 13, 3 and 5, we have an interesting example of this. Luke 13, Luke 13, 3 and 5. Now, if you glance down through those first five verses, you see Jesus is here pointing out the universality of the fact that, uh, the universality of sin and the fact that universally men are sinners and deserve to perish before God. The, undoubtedly, the Jews at this particular time were with some, uh, some pleasure telling the story of the Galileans who were especially who were killed in this especially terrible way by Pilate. Apparently while they were in the midst of their sacrifice they were killed. And as they were in the midst of their sacrifice they were killed by Pilate and there was the story running around uh, they must have been terrible sinners to be so killed. 
And Jesus just universalizes this. In the third verse, uh, I tell you nay. Uh, yes, in the uh, second verse, I'm sorry. Suppose ye that these Galileans were sinners above all the Galileans because they suffered such things? No. But except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. So he takes this sort of scandal that they're talking about and he makes it into the fact of a universal, a universal the fact of all men being equally sinners. All men being equally sinners, just because a man comes to a specially heinous death is no sign that he is a greater sinner than the rest of men. All men are sinners. And he then extends it to these, on whom these 18, who, on whom the tower of Siloam fell. And it must have been the same thing. Do you think they're sinners above all men that dwell in Jerusalem? I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall also likewise perish. And so, in this universality, it seems to me here we dig deeper into this fact of the need of the preaching of repentance. In Jesus dealing with uh, the universality of sin in this very, very striking way, he says, well, you must repent. You must repent. Men must repent. Men must have some sense of guilt and repent. Now, he doesn't finish the preaching of the gospel here. He is, there is a preparation but that almost, that makes it stronger, actually. That he, he, he does emphasize here this need of, of repentance if one is going to escape this, uh, this same situation. So in the sense, as I say, this digs deeper. In the sense of the universality of sin and the beginning to sense something deeper of, of the universality of sin and our individual part in this universality, Jesus' word comes, there must be repentance. There must be repentance. Men don't accept Christ as Savior till they know they need the Savior. Then you have this very striking thing of 1630. Luke 1630, Jesus is speaking, telling the story of the rich man in Hades. And the rich man in Hades says to Abraham, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. It turns the same place. They will be sorry. They will be sorry for their sins if only one goes to them from the, from, uh, the dead. And, of course, uh, Abraham, surely Jesus speaking here, and uh, Abraham speaks and says, not at all. If they aren't persuaded through Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded The one rose from the dead. Now, this, I think, is very striking. They won't be persuaded. They won't be persuaded specifically to repent. If one isn't brought to repentance on the basis of the Old Testament preaching, nothing will bring them, says this, is what Jesus says here. Now then, in, uh, in Matthew, uh, I'm sorry, Luke 24, 47, this is brought to us as the task of the church. Luke 24:47. Now here we pass beyond. And that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. And ye are witnesses of these things. So here what is to be preached? And now we are swept beyond the cross. Now we're in really in a completely New Testament setting. And in this New Testament setting, uh Thus it is written, and thus it behoove Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations, beginning at Jerusalem. The two steps here. 
the repentance and the remission of sins. And the, certainly the feeling here, I would say, is that if there is no repentance, one cannot expect men to Christ and no remission of sins. Now, in the uh, after Pentecost, we find this situation uh, being carried on. In Luke 2.38, we find Peter preaching, and uh, we find his word at this particular time. And then Peter, as is Acts 2.38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent, and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the remission of sins, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And the door is repent. That isn't the end of it, but it's the beginning of it. It isn't just believe on Christ as Savior. This can be a cheap word. Not if it's preached properly, but it can be a cheap word. The, it isn't... A, a man isn't really ready to believe in the biblical sense is what's being stressed here unless he, he has some sense of his need of a Savior. Now, I stress some sense and because for the 20th century man there's a very weak sense of guilt. I'll deal with that later. But there is a difference between, between accepting the fact that in the 20th century we live in a, in a weak time of guilt in comparison to, say, previous to 1900, uh, just saying this and passing by, when men live more or less in the, Christian, in the circle of the Christian consensus. But there's a difference between realistically understanding that men today have a weakened sense of guilt. There's a difference between that and beginning to try to preach a gospel uh, as though men didn't have to have any sense of guilt. They, that isn't the same thing. One is, one is understanding. There, to understand that men do have a weakened sense of guilt today, but to, uh, but to begin to try to preach the gospel without, any, without talking to men about their moral is to miss the whole point. Now in Acts 3.19, Repent ye therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. It's the same thing. Peter's still preaching here, or is preaching again. Repent ye therefore and be converted. But it's repent first, and then the conversion. Now then, in 531, we're told that Christ came in order to give repentance to the Jews. Acts 531. Him hath God exalted with his right hand to be a prince and a savior, to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. This is to the Jews. To the Jews. To give repentance to Israel and then forgiveness of sins. But Israel is not going to come, individual Israel will not come, except through the door of repentance. There just isn't any possible to come. So now we're talking about the lost. And we would stress, as hard as we know, as, as hard as possible, repentance is not the basis for our salvation. The basis for our salvation is always the finished work of the Lord Jesus. The instrument to receive this finished work of Christ is not repentance, it is faith. Yet nevertheless, while this is true, a man is not really ready to accept Christ as Savior until he has some sense, even if less it's a, maybe a weak sense, but some sense of guilt, some sense of true moral guilt. Now, of course, this is a very strong word in our generation because the new theologians have just destroyed any sense of moral guilt. Modern man just doesn't have any sense of moral guilt. This whole sense of relativity uh, in all things is involved in this. 
All things are relative. Everything is viewed pragmatically. There is no sense of real absolute to be measured against. And uh, this is heightened by the, the tremendous and awful flow of modern theology that makes man's sin not to be not to be real moral guilt, but only a metaphysical uh, or psychological lack. Man isn't big enough. Man isn't infinite. Man has psychological uh, limitations, and this is this is the modern theology's guilt. But it's not biblical guilt. Biblical guilt is there is a God who exists and who is a character, and he. His character is the law of the universe, and when I suddenly stand before him, I see myself not as relatively guilty, or metaphysically guilty, or psychologically guilty, but I see myself as morally guilty, in an absolute sense. So in our generation, rather than weakening the preaching of repentance, there must be an emphasis here of some sort, but all the time being realistic that modern man not just in his theology, not just the theologians, but the whole temper of modern man is to undercut any real sense of moral guilt. So one can say, modern men have a uh, have a weakened view of moral guilt, but that's different from forgetting. But there must be a sense of repentance. And in so here we have the this in regard to Israel in eleven. That is the Jews. In 11.18, the same thing is stressed for the Gentiles, the non-Jew, in the preaching of the gospel. Acts 11.18. And when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. It's exactly the same framework. There's, also, there's already been a faith here. I won't go into the story. But... They, they they expressed it in repentance on life because this is what they knew. They knew that this was the door they came through. This is the door that all men must come through. If there had been a motion of true evangelical faith, there must have been also a giving of repentance prior to that evangelical faith. Now, we find Paul preaching to the Gentiles in Acts 17.30. Acts 17.30. And the times of this ignorance God overlooked, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. Now, going into this verse fully, just to say, here's Paul preaching, and as Paul preaches, here's his message. All men now, and he's speaking to the Gentiles, uh, must repent. In 2021, the same thing. Acts 20, 21. The same thing. Testifying both to the Jews and to the Gentiles, or to the Greeks, repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here we have a very clearly stated uh, two steps by Paul in the way he preached the gospel. This is, we found this in structure, what we've already seen, but here Paul laying down this statement of the way he preached the gospel. Uh, states this very clearly, repentance toward Christ and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ of repentance toward God and faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. One, two. One, two. One, two. And I think we must see here this not to make a mechanical thing. That isn't the way to get at it. But we must see that there is no other way to really come. In Romans 2, 4. 
in Romans 2, 4. Or despisest thou the riches of his goodness and forbearance and long-suffering, not knowing that the goodness of God leadeth thee to repentance? So here we have, uh, here we have God's, God's long, God's goodness, God's kindness. And why is he waiting? What is his, what is his, what does God's kindness lead us toward in his, in his not striking his dead in our sin? Well, the reason the Holy God does not strike man dead in his sin is that he leadeth, he uses this to lead us to repentance. Now, this is, comes at a very, very striking place here, of course, in this book of Romans and in this particular setting. Because here in the book of Romans, and at this particular setting, he's just set forth, uh, he's setting forth the very the rudimentary things of why man needs salvation. And here in the second chapter, he's dealing with the just judgment of God, the just judgment of God, and that all men have, have sinned against their own, their own standards. And therefore, uh, the man without the Bible, just as much as the man with the Bible, is guilty because he, every man draws up some moral statements and then deliberately sins against them, his own standards that he makes for others. And in such a setting, he says, and in such a place, do you forget why God is kind while he waits? Because he wants you to come to repentance. And then he goes on, of course, uh, more into the lostness and then into the way of salvation. Now, Hebrews 6.1 likewise emphasizes the, the steps of repentance and faith. Hebrews 6.1 Therefore, leaving the, the uh, word of the beginning of Christ or the principles of the doctrine of Christ, let us go on unto perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and faith toward God. So he's laying out here the ABCs. And he says, let's get beyond the ABCs. But this is very striking. That the ABCs, are, are that, they, that he can point out and that he knows the church in that early day will accept as the ABCs is repentance and then faith. And these were the ABCs. This is the beginning point. We're still talking about preaching the gospel to the lost. There must be a, a preaching uh, of, uh, of real moral guilt, of repentance. We have a very striking case in Judas that, uh, that mere sorrow for sin is not enough, however. In Matthew 27, 3, Matthew 27, 3, one of the things, these things, if we don't read it just as so many words, it's a very jarring thing here, a thing of great strength, tremendous, tremendous strength as we read it. And, and therein compre some comprehension. This tremendous emotional, uh, emotional factor here if we read it with an open mind and heart. Then Judas, when, when he had betrayed him, when he saw that he was condemned, repented himself and brought again the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and elders. So there was some motion of repentance there. Now, it wasn't enough because he didn't come to Christ. Could, could, could Judas have come? There's no, nothing in the scripture that says he couldn't come. He didn't come. Could he have come? Yes. But repentance isn't enough. A man can be sorry for his sin to such an extent he throws himself under a moving train. A man can see that he has made a mess of his own life and destroyed his wife and destroyed his children 
and becomes so overwhelmed he just puts himself to sleep. Sleeping pills. That doesn't mean he's saved. The, the sorrow for sin, some sorrow for sin is necessary, but it doesn't save. It is the door toward faith in Christ, but it is not the same thing as faith in Christ. There's another element that should be mentioned here, and that is that if there is true, if there is true repentance, it will lead to restitution. In Luke 19.8, now remember, I, didn't, I said I wasn't going to try to exhaust this study, because we could look into many of these things for a whole lesson. Luke 19.8 And Zacchaeus stood and said unto the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have taken anything from any man by false accusation, I restore to him fourfold. And this is something to, we must notice, that it isn't, it, that if there is real, if there's real, a real repentance for sin, there'll be an attempt to to do something wherein we can do something of restitution. There are certain things that we have done of which there is no possibility of restitution. But on the other hand, there are things which we have done wherein there is a possibility of restitution. And if there is a real repentance, it isn't just saying very quietly, I'm sorry, but it will lead to, it will lead to certain practical results. And repentance is, leads to a practical result toward God. And being sorry for our sin, it leads to a practical result toward those we have injured when we have sinned against God, and that is a desire to make restitution. Now, I think by this time, we certainly should have a feeling that there is a pl the, the Scripture is very plain in talking about lost men, that there is a place uh, for the preaching and comprehension of uh, repentance. John the Baptist so preached, Christ so preached, the disciples so preached before the time of the cross, but it's a clear message after the time of the cross and Pentecost on into the New Testament. Now I would state again that it is not the ground, the Bible never makes it the ground for salvation, nor does it even make it the instrument to lay hold of the finished work of Christ. But it is, it, is, it is a necessary introduction to this. To be sorry for one's sin, to see one as a sinner, even if there is, it's weak, and we mustn't expect everybody to feel the same strength of this. And we have to take into account the cutting down on the sense of guilt in our generation, in practice. Yet, nevertheless, when a man, a man if he's going to lay hold of Christ in faith, uh, there will have to be some sense in his part of the need of so doing. Now when we come to the Christian, the Bible also makes plain that repentance has a place. It doesn't have a place only for coming to accept Christ as Savior. It has a place after we are Christians. After we're Christians. In Luke 17, 3 and 4, Take heed to yourself, if thy brother trespass against thee, rebuke him. And if he repent, forgive him. And if he trespass against thee seven times in a day, seven times in a day, turn again to thee. Turn again, and, and seven times in a day, turn again to thee, saying, I repent, thou shalt forgive him. 
Now, the main emphasis here, of course, is upon the fact that when a man repents, we're not to continue to hold something against him. We're to forgive him. This is the other side of the coin. The other side of the coin of people being sorry for their sin is that Christians should be waiting to forgive. However, you will notice that while this is the chief emphasis, nevertheless, the Bible makes plain that this is a brother in Christ, and it is a brother in Christ who has transgressed or trespassed against another brother in Christ, and for him he should repent. Now, the man who has been injured should be waiting, just waiting to say, I forgive you. He should have the spirit of forgiveness in his heart before he sees even the sign of repentance, as far as the spirit of forgiveness is concerned. But while that is true, at this particular place, it is made very plain that there is a place for one Christian, seeing he's harmed another, to repent and go and say sorry. Now then, in 2 Corinthians, we have this very strong word of Paul to the church of Corinth in their, uh, in their sin. Now, the church has sinned here in being lax toward, in discipline toward a man who has sinned. An individual has sinned. He's gotten into fornication, a very strong form of this. And the church has gone on without, without facing the man with his sin, without discipline. And so Paul writes and shows them that the whole church now is in sin because they have, they have been lenient towards sin in the church, lenient not in the sense of being, of being forgiving and understanding, but lenient and just shrugging their shoulders about it, doing nothing about it. So he talks here of the letter he has written, 2 Corinthians 7, 8 through 11. Now he has written a letter in, the first, in 1 Corinthians. I'll not get into the problem here of other possible exchanges that are indicated that there's no interest in this particular point. But I just say, without getting involved in the, the, uh, some of these uh, deeper considerations of the interchange letters, Paul's written a letter in 1 Corinthians, tells them they should do something. And uh, they have done it. And now Paul is writing this, beginning with verse 8. For though I made you sorry with a letter, I do not repent, though I did repent. For I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but for a season. Now I rejoice, not that ye were made sorry, but that ye sorrowed to repentance, for ye were made sorry after a godly manner, that ye might receive damage by us in nothing. For godly sorrow worketh repentance to salvation, not to be repented of, but the sorrow of the world worketh death. For behold this self-saved thing, that ye sorrowed after a godly sort. What carefulness it wrought in you! Yea, what clearing of yourselves! Yea, what indignation! Yea, what fear! Yea, what vehement desire! Yea, what zeal! Yea, what revenge! In all things you have proved yourself to be clear in this matter. In other words, they were confronted with, through Paul's letter in 1 Corinthians, with the fact reminding them that sin is sin. And being stirred up by this letter, uh, they then disciplined the man. They, should, they disciplined the man. Now, however, just to say in quick passing here, is that it's clear also from this letter, though I don't want to go into this here, that the man did repent. And in Second Corinthians, Paul is writing here and reminding them that it's very important now that they show him love and do exactly what the Lord Jesus has said in this Luke passage. And that is when a man is really sorry, uh, the church is to stand, the individual is to stand ready to receive him in love. They're not to continue to stand and push him off. But nevertheless, 
he has written to them and they have reacted properly in being sorry for their part in, in passing sin by in the church of Christ. Now 2 Corinthians 12, 21. 2 Corinthians 12, 21. At least when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and that I, sh I shall bewail many which have sinned already and have not repented of the uncleanness and fornication and, the fornication and lasciviousness <coughs> which they have committed. So he's saying here, do clean these things up in the church before I come. Do clean them up before I come. And, uh, of course, the church of Corinth was especially prone to sexual sins because in the pagan world it was known very much as a center of such a life. And, uh, but the emphasis here is upon the fact, be sure that there is this uh, uh, repentance. Now, here it's to the church. It isn't to the unsaved man in preparation for acceptance of Christ as Savior. It's the proper life of the Christian and the proper life of the church to repent with a real repentance when uh, we have fallen into sin. In 2 Timothy 2, 28, or 25 and 26, we're reminded that, that this is one of the tasks of a, Christ, a Christian preacher or a pastor. One of the tasks of the Christian pastor is to, uh, is to preach. I'll just read here, 2 Timothy 2, 25 and 26. In meekness instructing those that oppose themselves, if God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. This is very interesting. It says, taken alive by them. Uh, by uh, him at his will. Now, I'm not. I'm not saying now. This isn't. Uh, this would seem to me to be telling us how to preach to the lost as a pastor, if we are a pastor um, or a minister. Yet, nevertheless, I'm just pointing out here. It isn't to be separated from the mentality of the Christian church. The Christian is to be repentant. The church is to be repentant, and the church has done that which is less than it should. Uh, and the t the pastor's task is to uh, is to stir this up in a real sense. Now then, last time, of course, we dealt lengthily upon this in 1 John 1, 9. But I would, for the sake of completeness, in this particular study, remembering what I gave you last time and uh, what a Christian should do when he finds sin in his life, that he should confess it to God. I'll read it again simply uh, to for completeness here, but do remember last time's study. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the first step in coming under the blood of Christ afresh for particular sin is to confess that sin. And the confession you remember in what we have just read in the... Um, chapter 15 of Repentance Unto Life, in section 5, men ought not to content themselves with a general repentance, but is every man's duty to endeavor to repent of his particular sins, particularly. I like that, particular sins, particularly. And this is a, a warning, and it's exactly what we find in 1 John, exactly what we found in our study last time. Uh, there, is a, there is a kind of an awfulness to 
come to God's presence always, always, always from the time we become a Christian to the time we die and simply say in big, sweeping, general terms, forgive me for my sin. Some people pray like that. They show no interest in the particular sin. But there must be a real question. If this is so, is there any repentance on the part? If this is so, is there any restored fellowship? And the answer must be pretty thoroughly no. If there's going to be restored fellowship on the Christian's part, there must be a sense of the sinfulness of a particular sin. When there it is. Now also, in speaking of a Christian's, a Christian's part, uh, we are warned that we are, we talk about restitution, but now that we're warned to that we are specifically to confess our faults to each other. In James 5.16, if we are going to, if we're going to have restitution, and I don't want to go back, as I say in the last week's sermon, we must confess our particular sins particularly to God. But also there is involved a confession of our sins to each other in James 5.16. Confess your faults one to another and pray one for another that ye may be healed. The affection, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Elijah was a man subject to like passions as we are, and he prayed, and so on. He wasn't a perfect man. He had the same faults we had, that he prayed. Now, without going into this verse and exegeting this verse, there is the definite emphasis, confess your faults one to another. It's confessing your faults here one to another primarily that we might pray for one another. There is no sense here that the Roman Catholics would make of a special confession to a priest. It is a, it is a two-way matter. Confess your faults one to another. It isn't one, a one-directional confession. There is to be some openness between the Christian, confessing faults. And while this is uh, given as a general statement, it certainly carries with it in the whole thought of Scripture, remembering what we read about what Jesus said in Luke 17, that when we harm a brother, we are to confess to him expressly concerning uh, that fault. And this is a very important thing and something that tends to be much too overlooked, it seems to me, by the evangelical Christians much too much overlooked now it is perfectly true there's a reason for leaning against this because there are those who, who would give the idea the liberals today would give an idea well if you're just sorry for your sins whatever God is there whatever stands behind the word God well certainly that's enough if you just if you have some general sorrow for your sins and this this is a denial of the gospel so we must say a thousand times in one lifetime, and more than a thousand. Surely I've said it many thousand. But the, the only ground is the finished work. The only instrument to lay hold of these things, whether it's for salvation or in the Christian's life, is the instrumentality of faith. But in saying all that, let us beware that we do not forget that there is a place for repentance. There is a place for repentance. There is a place for repentance before a man can really flee to Christ for salvation. There is a place for repentance in the Christian's life toward God and toward each other if we are to exhibit that, that understanding of the nature of God and the character of God uh, which, uh, well, it would be expected that a Christian should have. If we are Christians... There is to be a daily forgiveness of sins, as we saw last time, by coming to God. But this carries with it some sense of restitution. It carries with it some, some being sorry when we've hurt somebody else.
mustn't fall off the line and make this the basis of salvation or being forgiven. That isn't the point. The basis is the finished work of Christ. But are you really ready for the finished work of Christ to forgive you? Either the first time for salvation or in the Christian life, if there is, if, if there is practically no motion of any real sins of being sorry. Now, the confession ends with the, with the fact of there being a right place for public confession in the sixth section of this 15th chapter. As every man is bound to make private confession of his sins, praying for the pardon thereof, work of Christ to forgive you, either the first time for salvation or in the Christian life, if there is, if, if there is practically no motion of any real sins of being sorry. Now, the confession ends with the, with the fact of there being a right place for public confession in the sixth section of this 15th chapter. As every man is bound to make private confession of his sins, praying for the pardon thereof, upon which in the forsaking of them he shall find mercy, so he that scandalizeth his brother or the church of Christ ought to be willing by private or public confession and sorrow for his sin to declare his repentance to those that are offended, who are thereupon to be reconciled to him and in love to receive him. Now, there's a, there's a word to say here, and a strong word and then a warning. The strong word is that there is a place for public confession. If somebody has hurt the whole church, it is perfectly proper not, as a, not to make them a public spectacle, and not in some sadistic fashion, but in love and tears, that there should be uh, a motion before the whole church. Yet on the other hand, the warning is that this so easily becomes sadistic on one side, as though those looking on as they hear the confession are, are without sin, which is not true. Or public confession is made to be some sort of a very special factor. The old, the old Oxford movement, uh, the Bookmanites at their early days, put a tremendous emphasis on, on confession of sin. And not just if you'd injured somebody or that group, but as though there was a special virtue in, in uh, uh, humiliating yourself by standing up and confessing your sins. And I feel that this was one of the very definite, or maybe the definite place, where the, the uh, Frank Bookman led his people off the track. Because certainly, as I remember, the, back in the 30s, the rise of the Bookmanite meeting, uh, movement at that time, which is now known, of course, and is further away, much further away today, is moral rearmament. You attended these meetings, and there was a sense that that this was the important thing for getting the pressing on to the claiming the blood of Christ. And I think this was the, the probably the place where uh, Frank Bookman jumped the track. Because it doesn't, remember Judas, it doesn't do you any good just to stand up and say you're sorry, even if it's the most humiliating thing you've ever done, if you do not lay hold of the blood of Christ. It can become another way of salvation, and I think it became another way of salvation to the, to the, to the Bookmanites. It can become another way of salvation. And uh, the more grieving it was to say it, the more humiliating, uh, not much difference between this and the physical beating of the Roman Catholic monk, in a sense. And there's another factor in public confession that one would have to say with great care, and that is we must beware 
because there is no, it is not helpful to confess things publicly that might lead the others standing there into the same temptations. And this would be especially so with sexual sins. And wherever there's a tremendous emphasis on public confession, an inordinate uh, emphasis, almost always one finds that pretty soon you're dealing with sexual sins. And, and then one wonders. One must begin to wonder, well, isn't this now an augmentation of the sin? Not to say it always is at all. But isn't it often? And I think the answer must be yes. Our, we are so, we're so complex, and we love these things so much. So in dealing with, the, first of all, we must say, in dealing with this, a strong emphasis, just like the confession, place it. That if we have sinned against the whole church, if we have sinned against the whole church, there is a place to confess before the whole church. But that's a very different thing from putting too strong an emphasis on public confession. I would say that in my own experience as a pastor, that it is only a rare occasion that public confession is, has value. When it, when, it, when it has value, it has great value, and it must be followed through. But as I say, we must, the man listening to the, people listening to the confession must always say, well, I'm a sinner too. And we must be ready to accept the man as soon as he indicates a sorrow for sin. And there is a place for this. And in our present day, there's all too little emphasis on this, just as there's any all too little emphasis on the whole concept of repentance. But at the same time, just be careful. Just be careful. Be careful you're not toying with your own sin uh, as you confess it, especially if it's in a sexual area. And be careful that one isn't stirring up other people to sin. And be careful that the whole thing just doesn't become something which must be as obnoxious to God as anything possibly could be. And that is the church enjoying sin under the banner of confessing it and being sorry. So one must be careful at this point. Now, having said this, let's emphasize uh, then the points concerning repentance. That it isn't the ground. The ground is the only the of forgiveness. One can be so sorry, in a sense, for sin that he throws himself under a train, into the river, drowns himself, hangs himself, takes sleeping pills and dies, and yet be lost. The, the repentance is not the base. Nothing is of great enough base for our salvation except the finished work of Jesus Christ in history. The finished work of Christ in history. The instrument that accepts this, lays hold of it, is only ever one thing. It is always the empty hands that accepts the gift. The empty hands of faith. It's believing God. Not a jump in the dark, but believing the promises of God. Yet, nevertheless, for a man to become a Christian, there must be some sense of, of that he's guilty morally. And this will carry with it some sense of repentance. On the side of the Christian... It is the same thing again, as we shall see later. Uh, and that is, well, as we touched last week. And that is that the, the base for our forgiveness as a Christian in the sense of a restored fellowship is the finished work of Christ. It is faith that lays hold of this. But we cannot expect to go rushing to the Holy God, rushing to the Holy God and have him forgive us if we still don't, don't care anything that we've sinned. 
I have a little thing here written in a very strong reformed paper that I'd read to you. It seemed seemed to me I ran into it just the other day as I was thinking about this uh, this lecture, and seems to me to be worth reading here. This is a, from a group out of Scotland, though this was written in the United States. Repentance considered by itself and distinct from faith does not have the same instrumentality for receiving justification or securing union with Christ as faith. Yet it is so inseparably connected with faith that where true faith is, there must also be repentance. Quote, and then they quote from an old Scottish source, at least in its root and begun exercise. Now that last part is very interesting, at least in its root and begun exercise, because though this is something out of the past, it really speaks very strongly to our 20th century, as I just said. It really speaks very strongly. We, but before I finish at that point, let's remember God is really holy. You cannot, you cannot, you cannot play with God. You cannot play with God. God is a flaming fire in His holiness. Modern theologian tends to take the word holy and just mean this is God. God is God. God is this, in the sense that He is holy simply as a statement. He is God. That's not the biblical view. The biblical view is a real moral character. And we must, we must come to God with a godly fear and trembling, not in a, not in a wrong way. You know, orthodoxy can make this into a wrong way and make God a tyrant. That's never true. He's a God of love. He's a God who sent Christ to die for us. But let us not think that we can play with God. There's no playing with God. Because God is God, and God is holy. So therefore, the, for the non-Christian coming to be saved, for the Christian, for restored fellowship, let's not fool ourselves and try to fool God. He is holy, and this must be taken into very strong account. Yet, nevertheless, I would end with a word for the 20th century again, though I've already mentioned this. And that is, the 20th century has no sense of guilt. This is one of the hallmarks of the 20th century. It's something that would have never been understood before. Well, I suppose you could find some place in history where it could be understood. But in general, it's a brand new phenomenon. It is a product of man's present um, cutting loose not only from any concept of God, but any concept of the absolute or the unity of the universe in a very real sense. So consequently, modern man has no sense of guilt. You feel this in law where more and more we see men not as guilty to be punished, but just sick. Now, it's perfectly true that there are elements of sickness often in the man who is the criminal. And these should be dealt with on the basis of sickness. But that's different from not seeing that there is also something of real guilt. That isn't the same. You don't have to be cruel and harsh to understand there's real guilt, even though there may also be sickness. And sometimes we may not always be able to distinguish but in principle, we must distinguish, or we are lost. We're absolutely lost in, our, in any kind of uh, operation as well as comprehension. So consequently, the 20th century is a relativistic age, and nowhere more so than the sense of no guilt. Anything passes. Anything that, anything that is, is right. The things that... When we are, when, when mankind 
stop something, it's just simply on the basis of statistics. It is no longer within the circle of the average, something like this. I just read this week, uh, Ingram Bergman, a uh, man who makes the films, said that when he was young, when he was young, uh, that he had an idea of what life ought to be. And that was more in his, uh, uh, in his younger days. And now through existentialism, but with this new film of silence, surely he has come to a new place. He has come to a new place where he just... He just says, this is life, and there are, no, there are no judgments. No judgments exist. It is the, the factor of what is, is right. And this is modern man's view. Well, now, the, it's anti-law in every sense. Now, this being true, this being true, you can't expect modern man to have much sense of guilt. It's been built, beat to death. It doesn't say there's no sense of guilt because you, uh, you never find a modern man who somewhere deep inside of him does not have a sense, some sense of guilt, of moral guilt. But that's a very different thing from, from the observation that modern man's sense of guilt is weakened. It's weakened in the study of sociology. It's studying the weakened in the areas of law. It's weakened in the area of morality. It's weakened on every side.